Welcome to Cancer Connections, the podcast for anyone who has been impacted by a cancer diagnosis or is open to learning from those who have. I'm Hillary Theakston, Executive Director of Clarity. On Cancer Connections, we have the kinds of conversations about cancer that don't always happen, but maybe could. Conversations that are thought-provoking, profound, and science-based. Conversations that we hope leave you more enlightened and empowered about the cancer experience. We won't have all the answers, but we hope you'll connect with the ideas, the people, and the resources that you need for life with cancer on your own terms. So thanks for listening, and thanks for connecting with us. Welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll a series of Cancer Connections episodes where we talk with experts about three topics that often do not get discussed after a cancer diagnosis. Sexuality after cancer, using cannabis or psychoactive drugs on the cancer trip, and the benefits of music therapy. Despite the lighthearted name, these are serious topics that our program participants often tell us they want more information about. We hope that by providing practical information from experts, You'll have more insight and feel more prepared to approach these conversations with the people in your own life. Our participants tell us that sex and sexuality after cancer are very important topics for them, but that they struggle to discuss their concerns with others. So we're devoting two episodes to hear from the experts. In part one, I speak with Dr. Saketh Guntupali, who's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Colorado. And he's the co-author of Sex and Cancer, Intimacy, Romance, and Love After Diagnosis. Dr. Guntupali offers his experience and perspectives as a physician who began looking into this topic after realizing that his patients were in need of guidance and answers as they sought to establish a new normal in their sex lives after cancer. In part two on sex, I chat with Leslie Heron, who has over 37 years of direct patient care experience as a nurse and a nurse practitioner. She's board certified in family practice, and as a nurse coach, Leslie works with individuals, community, and professional groups on issues of cancer survivorship. I think together they provide great insights on this topic, address many of the questions we hear most frequently, and offer practical suggestions for people regardless of the type of cancer or where they are in their journey. I hope you enjoy these discussions, and if you haven't already, be sure to check out the other episodes in our Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll series. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Dr. Guntapali. Thank you so much for joining the Cancer Connections podcast. And thanks for joining us today to talk about sex and cancer. It's a hot topic that we hear about from the patients, uh, the women that we support and caregivers. So I know that this will be a really uh, useful episode. And I really do appreciate taking your time um, to spend with us today to answer some questions about sex after cancer. So let's maybe just get started a little bit with what inspired you to write your book, Sex and Cancer? What was the inspiration? What what really prompted uh, the need for that as you saw it? So this is a very, very important topic and something that I hear about in my practice all the time, uh, that women come in and prior to their cancer diagnosis, Many of them had very healthy sex lives and, you know, some of them didn't. There were some issues, you know, to begin with. But generally, these women all had great uh, sex lives or at least sex lives that they were content with. And what we found kind of anecdotally is that 
after a diagnosis of cancer, the psychological and physical trauma of that diagnosis really substantially affected their intimate relationships. And this book really came out of one patient interaction I had about six years ago. Uh, I was seeing a woman for a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, and she basically had gone through surgery, had gone through chemo, and was in essence cancer-free, and subsequently just established care with me for surveillance. So she had been a year out of completing her chemotherapy, was generally doing well, hair was coming back in. And I said, well, you know, your CA-125 is normal and your scans look great. I'll see you back in three months. And she's just started to cry. And she said that basically she had just divorced her husband and that after her diagnosis of ovarian cancer, he never touched her in any intimate way. And that was very striking to me. I was like this woman, 43-year-old, very healthy, very normal in, in every sense, got this diagnosis of cancer and she beat it and lost her marriage in the process. And so we started really asking these questions, well, what is the prevalence or how many women really have uh, this issue? You know, how many women really have a substantial issue with sexual functioning after cancer? And so we did this very large survey and we found that it's almost 40 or 50% of women who have a diagnosis of gynecologic cancer end up having a very substantial issue with sexual functioning. Wow, that's those statistics are, um, I guess, not surprising, but it's it's helpful to know. And I think also just to normalize uh, the experience, maybe of some listeners who might be wondering if this is unusual, if they're alone in this. Um, so thanks for for giving us that background. What I'd love to do is just kind of at the front talk a little bit about the issues that can be related to sex and sexuality after a cancer diagnosis, um, one of the things that we do at Clarity in our support of patients and caregivers is to help them to really identify the specific issue that they're struggling with um, and to help them identify where they are. And it seems that there can really be a, a constellation of issues around sex and sexuality. Um, it would seem that there's probably just the very personal aspect of if you're not feeling well, if you're experiencing other side effects from chemotherapy or, or after your surgery um, changes in your, in your body physically, you know, that you might be missing this aspect of your life, um, that sexual activity is, is a missing element of your life and you're feeling that personally. You know, it could be also that it pertains to um, stress in your relationship or, or related to intimacy with a spouse or a partner. And then it seems like there's also a broader issue of sexual identity or feminine identity. Um, you know, you're treating women with gynecological cancers. And what does it mean to your to your identity as a woman if you've had some of your uh, reproductive organs removed? And, and where does that leave you? So I wonder if you can, you know, maybe take these in sections just because I do think it's helpful for people to pause for a moment and say, well, what's really going on here? Because it could impact the way you approach it, whether it's having a conversation with a partner or, um, you know, or, or examining those issues around identity. Maybe you could comment a little bit about the different facets of sex and sexuality and how cancer can impact those different facets. Yes. So, you know, I think that one of the most important things that I learned in this process was how much 
this affects a woman's sense of womanhood, femininity, and her kind of sexual well-being. And that's something I did not appreciate uh, when I first started writing this book. Um, and I'll just give you an example. I have a patient uh, in the book, uh, I think it's in chapter four, who talks about what it was like to lose her hair. And she talked about just going through the airport in Denver along those long, um, you know, people movers and people just staring at her on the other side, going the other way. And by being bald and not having any hair, she said that it felt like a scarlet letter on her chest, that every single person who was on that other side of that escalator knew that she had cancer and that she was sick and that they should stay away. And she felt that she just made her feel so bad. And it's not something that I really appreciated. You know, I think for men, there's a social expectation that you'll lose your hair and it's a part of getting older. And, you know, maybe it seems distinguished, but for women to lose your hair is really, that is a, a scarlet letter on your chest that you've got cancer. And so I think that that's something that I learned as a provider about how important it was to at least acknowledge that and prepare women for that. The other part of this is, you know, when a woman gets a diagnosis of breast cancer, breasts are the kind of most outward form of sexuality for a woman. Uh, women are very proud of their breasts. They're proud of their body image and their shape. And when you have breast cancer, you remove that. Uh, and, you know, that is a very outward sign of femininity. When you have ovarian cancer, you're removing the ovaries, and really the ovaries are really biologically the essence of a woman. And, you know, we take them out very willy-nilly in our society. We don't think that that is such a loss, and women feel a sense of loss when those when those organs are removed. So one of the things that I learned as a provider, and I think was important for me to know and certainly to educate my fellow surgeons in this regard, is that when we remove these organs or when hair falls out, that's not a small thing. And it is a, certainly a double standard in our society. You know, when a man has testicular cancer, we have an entire industry that is devoted to testicular prostheses and things to make him still feel like a man. And we need to keep that in mind for women. And certainly when we're removing these organs, we need to at least uh, think about that part of the of the equation. And maybe while we're we're talking about that, just specifically understanding the impact of the surgery, the hormonal impacts uh, of the surgery, I spoke to a, a survivor who was really past childbearing age and didn't plan to have children. But it was interesting that she just shared with me that even though she wasn't still planning to have children, there was still this sense of loss of the possibility due to the surgery. And and I expect that there are, are many other instances of of how the surgery impacts, you know, can, can create that sense of loss. Yes. And, you know, one of the things that I hear also quite a bit about is particularly with the surgery is the scar. You know, when we're doing these big debulking surgeries, we make these massive incisions on a woman's abdomen and it is, you know, disfiguring. And it's something that we have to do. And I, I think 99% of women know that we have to do it, but that doesn't take away from the grief or the struggle or when you're in the shower, let you see this huge scar that, you know, isn't going to go away. So, I mean, I think that these are all things that as surgeons, as clinicians, as doctors, we need to do a better job of at least acknowledging. I think for most patients, they just want to hear, I get it, your right to mourn the loss of your uterus, your right to mourn the loss of your breasts, your right to mourn the loss of your hair. Um, you know, I think that that is something that we have to keep in mind. Yeah. 
And I wonder if you've had experiences of speaking to women about the cultural norms that they're surrounded in as they're going through this very difficult journey through cancer to step away from that and maybe distance themselves from, you know, we have a a fairly sexualized culture and media and their expectations around sexuality. So I think it helps to recognize that and to appreciate that that's part of our culture. Do Do you feel like it ever helps for women to not feel quite as criticized or vulnerable if they can identify that this isn't personal to them. It's, it's just part of, you know, part, part of the culture that we're living in. Um, and, and that gives you a chance to examine it and question these cultural norms without necessarily taking them on board, um, and accepting the judgment that you described. Um, have you had conversations like that or, or does that seem to be helpful at all? So um, I think that it's all about, you know, setting expectations, particularly for people that, you know, maybe don't have the best health literacy. I mean, I think it's just difficult because when you get a diagnosis of gynecologic cancer, particularly, there's so many things that are going through your head. And I think that people get very overwhelmed. That's one thing I think communication is really important. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of communication, I think that as sexual activity would involve a a partner or a spouse, would just love to hear a little bit about your perspectives on how to have these conversations. Um, In this podcast, we're presenting, I think, topics that can oftentimes be difficult to discuss. These are conversations that aren't always happening as frequently as could be helpful on the cancer journey. But I hope that what we're doing is presenting the benefits that can lie on the other side of these difficult conversations. And I have to imagine that in the midst of a very stressful health experience and treatment, to have a conversation about sex between a couple, um, that could be maybe stressful, it might be difficult to Mm -hmm. raise the topic. So if you have any tips or um, or observations about how you've seen couples navigate these conversations successfully, and then the benefits that can lie on the other side. What does that mean for intimacy in the relationship? Can this actually be an opportunity to strengthen the relationship through having conversations about about a difficult topic? How do you counsel patients and, and I guess especially couples in in how to navigate this conversation? So one of the things that I think is incredibly important is for couples to communicate with one another and to realize that things are going to be different after diagnosis of cancer, any cancer, but particularly gynecologic or breast cancer. And understanding that what may have given a woman pleasure before may be more difficult afterwards. And just understanding and communicating about that, I think, is very important. The second thing is... One of the things that I found when writing this book is a very antiquated view that we as a society have towards sex. When we think about sex and when most people think about sex in this country, they think about foreplay, intercourse, orgasm, resolution. And we all think about sex in that very um, linear mindset. And I think that that's to our disadvantage because sex is so much more than that. And intimacy is definitely more than that. 
And I think that it is really important when I've talked to couples about what they're going through after diagnosis of cancer, one of the things that I say is you have to get out of the mindset because we're conditioned from the time where 13, 14, 15, that when you have sex, there's some foreplay, there's intercourse, there's an orgasm, and then there's a resolution and it's done. And maybe that process takes 30 minutes, maybe that process takes an hour, but that's what happens. And we really need to get out of that. And we talk a lot about that in my book, about how we need to look at it as not just sex, but intimacy. When you're intimate with somebody, that might be just holding hands. That might be a drive through the Rocky Mountains on a Harley you know, kind of clutching onto your partner. It might be intercourse. It might be oral sex. It might be just kissing or petting or lying naked or being in the shower with your partner. That is okay. And it is okay that intercourse is not the central part of it. I would say for most women and probably a lot more men than they would probably, you know, admit to, it's not the intercourse that is the best part of of sex. It's an important part and it's a pleasurable part, but it's not it's the intimacy that surrounds that act that I think that we need to focus on. And that's a, that's a great point. And I'm sure that there, there are lots of great tips in your book, Sex and Cancer, but maybe you could walk through some of the tips that, uh, that you go through in encouraging intimacy with, uh, with couples, um, ways that couples can establish and strengthen intimacy in their relationship. Right. So I generally have a three-pronged kind of first step, and that is, first is communication. What is pleasurable? What is not? Because oftentimes there's a disconnect. You know, after diagnosis of cancer, I think a lot of men kind of want to talk about intimacy, but are afraid to because they don't want to seem like that's the only thing that's on their mind. And oftentimes what I found is that's what's on a woman's mind. They want to get back to some degree of normalcy. And it's important for them to feel that connection. But I think communicating about what is pleasurable and what's not is very important. The second thing I would say is using a very good lubricant is probably the single biggest intervention that a couple can use to make sex pleasurable. I have suggested that to some couples and they have said that that has changed their sex life. And I mean using a non-odorous lubricant. Um, you know, one of the things that I found out is, you know, smell is our most visceral sense. And uh, somebody was using coconut oil as their as their lubricant because coconut oil is very easy and some people like the way it smells. And there was a gentleman that was like, I, I feel like I'm in a Thai restaurant when we're using this and I don't <laughs> like Thai food and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have that smell when I'm having sex. And so... Well, use one that doesn't have an odor to it. And so there are lubricants that are infused with CBD. And that's something that could be um, also very pleasurable for both members of the couple. So I think there are any number of things that you can do. Go to an adult store with your partner and buy a lubricant that you both like. And then the last thing is, you know, when we talk about this in the book, you have to kind of, it's kind of like that cheesecake that you get at Sam's or at Costco that has all the different flavors. You don't have to have just plain cheesecake or just raspberry cheesecake. You can have chocolate caramel swirl. You can have any of these other types of that kind of cheesecake of pleasure that don't involve intercourse. And you've got to really think outside the box with that, particularly after diagnosis of cancer, when 
you know, we foreshorten the vagina or it's painful because of radiation and the natural lubrication has been impaired. There are any number of things that could happen during uh, surgery or treatment for cancer. And I think it's really important to, to think outside the box, think about what it is that is pleasurable in the here and now, and then go for it. Those are some great tips. Thank you for sharing those. I'm sure they'll be useful to folks who are facing issues with this in their lives. Um, so a lot of this, what I'm hearing is, is I think a, a, a fundamental feature in the cancer experience and something that we understand um, in, in our work supporting patients at Clarity is that there's a tremendous amount of adjustment to the new normal, um, to um, aspects of your life that have changed, perhaps grieving the losses of of certain elements of your life. But what I think you've done so nicely is to lay out the possibility of discovering new elements of, um, you know, of your life, of your sex life, um, the, the opportunity for increased communication and intimacy around that. Do you feel like you've seen couples who actually have a more satisfying sex life um, because of of the enhanced communication and intimacy and, and conversation around adjusting to kind of the new normal? So it's interesting. I do have one uh, couple that was on the verge of a divorce prior to her diagnosis of uterine cancer, and she went through chemo, surgery, radiation, and he was so there for her because he wanted to be that kind of their last gift that he got her through that before their divorce. They ended up staying together because I think they kind of fell in love with each other all over again. So you'd be surprised. Sometimes the opposite happens too. Yeah, we hear and are so often inspired by instances of a cancer diagnosis, helping people to connect with what's really important to them to seize on to the pieces of their lives that give them joy and inspiration and perhaps to let go of elements that are not valuable to them anymore. Right. Um, so I think so much of the difficulty with many challenging aspects of the cancer journey is in starting that conversation, being able to broach that conversation um, and to speak openly and honestly. So do you have different advice for caregivers than you might have for patients? You know, what, what we have understood through the course of many conversations is that sometimes caregivers are uncertain about what they can do to support their partners. They're not entirely sure how they can, you know, be most supportive in that role, you know, what will be most helpful and useful. Um, so, Maybe coming at this from from the caregiver perspective, is there a unique role for a spouse or a partner um, in in supporting their spouse um, in kind of navigating to a new normal on sex and sexuality? Well, I think first and foremost, and I know this is you know kind of overused, but it is really true, and that is really communicating. I think communication is so incredibly important and communication is really um, at its most fundamental level how couples are going to get through this. So talking about their fears, talking about their concerns, talking about the things that you know worry them, I think is incredibly important. Yeah. Are there any other 
words of advice or tips from your book that you'd like to share with listeners, um, observations that you've made in, in treating and supporting patients through this experience to help them with the issues that they might be facing? You know, I think, first of all, I would strongly encourage any woman diagnosed with gynecologic cancer to uh, enroll in a support group. I think that that is so incredibly important. Uh, I think it is incredibly important to have that kind of sorority or sisterhood of what you all are going through because your husband, your doctor, if they don't got it, they don't get it. And so they, you need to be around women who have been through this. They can get you through it. They can get you tips. For the men um, or partners of people that are going through this, get into a support group because you need to take care of yourself so you can be there for your partner that's going through uh, these terrible diagnoses. So uh, again, I think that those are some of the things that I would say, talk to each other. It's okay to cry. It's okay to laugh. It is a new journey for a lot of couples, but it's a journey that most of them will get through. That's great advice. Have you heard of folks having success with counseling or therapy specifically around issues around sex and sexuality? Um, or do you feel that therapy or counseling is most important if there maybe were pre-existing issues with intimacy or communication? Um, how have you seen those kinds of support options work in, in your patients? Um, you know, a sex therapist is always very helpful. I've, I've never had a patient say that they regret going. Maybe they only go once and they can get the issues out, but I would strongly uh, encourage that as well. Well, Dr. Guntapali, thank you so much. This has been really helpful. Um, and, and I appreciate the words of wisdom and the perspectives um, that you've shared. And I'm curious, just before we wrap up, um, you, you mentioned the research survey that you did and I'm just curious about other questions or other learnings from that research of women with gynecological cancers and, um, you know, if there are any important learnings that, that would be helpful to share with our listeners. Just, you know, like I said, communication, use of a good lubricant, um, thinking about sex outside the box are really the three things that I think are the most important. Terrific. Great. Well, thank you so much no for problem. joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Cancer Connections. We hope we've left you with some new perspectives to make the cancer journey more manageable. Please review us on your preferred podcast platform and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, share these episodes with someone you care about. Sometimes starting a difficult conversation can be the hardest part. Sharing a podcast can show support and might even open doors to important discussions that can make a real difference. Cancer Connections is produced by Clarity, which provides free support and services to people impacted by ovarian cancer. If you'd like to learn more about Clarity or any of the topics we've discussed today, please visit us at clarityfoundation.org. Once again, that's clarityfoundation.org.